1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll talk with Peter Jassick, author of Isis: Faith in the Face of Evil, we'll also take a look at a new survey that says faith in America isn't dead. We'll find out whether or not that is in fact the case. But first, some of the day's headlines. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright died today, according to an announcement from her family. We are heartbroken to announce that Dr. Madeleine K. Albright, the 64th U.S. Secretary of State and the first woman to hold that position, passed away earlier today. The cause was cancer. She was surrounded by family and friends. We have lost a loving mother, grandmother, sister, aunt and friend, her family said in a statement. They went on to describe her as a tireless champion of democracy and human rights. Born Marie Beat Jana Korbel on the fifteenth of May, nineteen thirty-seven, Madeline Albright immigrated to the United States from Czechoslovakia with her family in nineteen forty-eight, following a communist coup. Her family was Jewish, converted to Roman Catholicism when she was five years old. Three of her Jewish grandparents died in concentration camps. Albright said she didn't learn of her family's Jewish heritage until after becoming Secretary of State. Well, after graduating from Wellesley College in 1959, she went on to earn her Ph.D. from Columbia University in 75. She worked uh, for former Senator Edmund Muskie and later with um, uh, Brezhnev. Uh, Brzezinski on the National Security Council during the Carter administration. She later served in the administration of former President Bill Clinton, first as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, then as Secretary of State during his second term. As Secretary of State, she played a role in urging the Senate to ratify expansion of NATO into former Soviet nations and secure nuclear nonproliferation agreements. She also helped convince Clinton to go to war against the Yugoslav leader Slobodan Milosevic because of how Kosovar, Albanians were being treated in 1999. Following her service in the Clinton administration, she remained outspoken and critical of the Bush administration's foreign policy following 9-11. In 2012, she was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom from former President Barack Obama. At the time of her death, she was a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, as well as chair of Albright Stonebridge Group. She also wrote several books. Now, keep in mind, she passed away at 84. She was still active and serving, Uh, says, um, uh. Clinton, in a statement of um, Albright, Hillary and I profoundly are profoundly saddened by the passing of Madeleine Albright. She was one of the finest secretaries of state, an outstanding U.N. ambassador, a brilliant professor and an extraordinary human being. Few leaders have been so perfectly suited for the times in which they served. He added, I will always be deeply grateful for the wonderful friendship Bill and I shared with Albright. This is Hillary Clinton and unfailingly. A wise counsel she gave us over so many years. So many people around the world are alive and living better lives because of her service. The impact that she has had on this building is felt every single day in just about every single corridor. That's a quote from the State Department spokesperson, Ned Price. Of course, she was a trailblazer as the first female secretary of state and quite literally opened doors for a large element of our workforce. Again, Madeline Albright dead at 84. President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Katanji Brown Jackson, she refused to define the word woman on the second day of her confirmation hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. As Senator Marsha Blackburn pressed Jackson on transgender issues Tuesday night, anticipating those issues will come ultimately before the court in a potential Obama Cold War. A decade after Obama, the administration ended the Pentagon's two war doctrine in 2012. The U.S. could face the issue of having to choose whether to get involved in the war in Ukraine or with a potential one in Taiwan. Decisions have long term consequences In a deadly twister. A tornado hit New Orleans and its nearby suburbs on Tuesday, destroying homes, knocking out power. At least one person is known dead. In a subdued confirmation, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's Supreme Court confirmation hearing are far less noisy than Kavanaugh's were, but it's not a cakewalk. Calling out the intimidation factor, Sean Hannity accused President Biden and NATO of being intimidated by Putin's threats of nuclear, chemical and biological warfare. And a Senate candidate says the left's restrictions on oil and gas production in the U.S., coupled with the promotion of green technologies like wind and solar, may actually lead to more pollution and worse carbon emissions globally in the long run. Well, claiming there are missing documents, the GOP is expressing frustration with Democrats allegedly withholding key documents related to the Brown-Jackson confirmation process. There was quite an exchange earlier today on that very point. Apparently, the senator forgot. Senator Cory Booker claimed to not know about Demand Justice, a group that's seeking to expand the high court, despite having spoken for the group at several events. Well, critical race theory and woke corporation critics launched a campaign to get American Express to stop racially divisive policies. And the most watched network, Fox News Channel, was the most watched network among all of the basic cable last week nc2a swimmer haley tan she asks who will stand up for me and other women being beaten by biological males like leah thomas you could hear the crickets greg Gutfeld points out that the nc2a seems more interested in appearing woke than protecting athletes but to make this ideology work you have to erase distinction between trans and biological women dr Jeanette neshwalt Uh, Says that Vladimir Putin is not only attacking medical facilities from the sky and with artillery, but he has sent thugs to harass medical professionals as well. She is a U.S. physician, happens to be a Christian who is currently serving in her capacity as a physician in Ukraine. Jake Alkencloss suggests that there is peace through strength and peace through dipl- diplomacy, so we must offer an off-ramp to Russia to stop the violence and to help them save face. In other news, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who predicted this nearly one year ago, thinks inflation will get worse than better. And sports unifier Canadian tennis star Leila Fernandez hopes to expand her reach to share the importance of sports and the significance it can have on women and young girls you're listening to the georgine rice show we need to take a quick break but we'll be back
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: hey welcome back you're listening to the second hour of the georgine rice show coming up in we're not listening to the second hour. This is just the first hour. I've jumped ahead in my mind. Anyway, in the second hour, we'll hear a classic interview with Peter Jassic, author of ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books. We'll also take a look at faith in America. According to a new survey, it isn't dead. We'll find out if this survey is at all helpful or instructive with that uh, in that regard. Well, Democrats are now working to solve the energy crisis they worked so hard to create. From the story, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan briefed reporters on Tuesday at the White House about the president's trip after Press Secretary Jen Psaki announced earlier in the day that she had tested positive for the coronavirus. On the energy announcement, Sullivan said the president was fully aware that most European companies would not follow the United States example in targeting Russian oil and gas exports. Sullivan claimed that Biden's sanctions and energy ban are increasing the costs on Russia, sharpening the choice for Russian. And he said the president feels very good about where things stand today in terms of the unity and resolve of the Western alliance on sanctions can read more in the Washington Examiner from the White House. So when the president announced that the United States was going to ban the import of Russian oil and gas, he was very clear. He said that the United States is uniquely positioned. We are an energy producer. We can do this. We can take this step of banning the import of Russian oil and gas and coal and be able to withstand it. Have resilience against it. That's from the White House. And Fox Business reports that reacting to Democrats' vote against an energy independence bill, which would approve construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, Representative Dan Musser of Republican from Pennsylvania slammed President Biden's assault on domestic energy. And Dan Mooser says this, the rise in energy costs is due to the Biden administration's continued assault on our domestic energy production. They're literally choosing Venezuela over Pennsylvania. They're choosing Tehran over Texas. We must choose American energy independence. And from The Daily Caller, Republican Washington Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers sent a letter to Eng- Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm urging her to appear before a key House committee for a briefing on rising gasoline prices. We'll follow that story if and as it develops. A spokesman for the Kremlin says Putin would use nuclear weapons in an existential crisis. Russian President Vladimir Putin would only use nuclear weapons if he felt his country's very existence was being threatened. According to a Kremlin spokesman, uh, Dmitry Peskov, uh, speaking to CNN, Christian Amanpour says President Putin has raised the threat of using nuclear weapons and his spokesperson uh, refused to rule out their use in an interview with me tonight. Also, from CNN, he also claimed that Russia has only attacked military targets despite numerous reports of Russian airstrikes against civilian targets sheltering ordinary Ukrainians. The interview comes as Western intelligence has reported that russia's operations have stalled in part uh, parts rather of ukraine and do russians uh, uh, do Russians have the proclivity To tyranny. Dennis Prager says most Russians looked at Stalin positively, and credible is the perfect description because he murdered 20 to 40 million of their fellow citizens. Well, the war in Ukraine has reached a turning point. Uh, from that story in the Atlantic, the Russian troops that invaded the country from the north, south and east are now scarcely moving. They've targeted schools, hospitals, apartment buildings and a theater sheltering children, but they are not yet in control even of the places they occupy. Precisely because the stakes are so high, the next few weeks will be extremely dangerous. Putin will do what he can to create fear. They want outsiders and especially Americans to fear the consequences of helping Ukraine. How should the West respond? There's only one rule. We can't cannot be afraid. Russia wants us to be afraid, so afraid that we were crippled. We are crippled by fear that we cannot make decisions, that we withdraw altogether, leaving way open for a Russian conquest of Ukraine and eventually a Poland or even further into Europe. The United States has partnered with France and Italy to create a fleet of warships gathered in the Mediterranean from the political, Because of Russian pressure, there are more U.S. warships in the Mediterranean than ever before, according to the Secretary of the U.S. Navy, Carlos del Toro. There are numerous Russian ships and subs in the Mediterranean today. That's why it's important for NATO to have an equal presence to deter them, he said, adding, the only thing Putin understands is strength. I hope you, along with me, are praying about this situation as it is on the brink of expanding in ways that we don't even want to imagine. As I pray, I'm reminded that God is the Lord of history. God is the Lord of history. He's not wringing his hands over Putin. He's not uh, sweating over what uh, the Ukrainians are suffering. God is the Lord of history. Critics say Supreme Court nominee Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson attempted to run away from her critical race theory past. On Tuesday afternoon, Senator Ted Cruz raised some writings and statements from Biden's Supreme Court nominee that showed Judge Jackson's support for woke ideologies, including CRT. Rather than admitting those writings are indeed her beliefs and show what sort of a justice she might be, she reportedly attempted to distance herself from the theory, some of its key tenets and its leading proponents. From um, the Republican National Committee research on Twitter, Katanji Brown Jackson says critical race theory doesn't come up in the work that she does as a judge. Senator Ted Cruz then reads a quote from her saying that critical race theory is part of her work as a judge. Reconciling the two, that's what these hearings are about. Town Hall reports Judge Jackson said that she did not believe that critical race theory was taught in schools. When Ted Cruz points out that the schools that um, she serves on as the board is of... Uh, Indeed, uh, the board of Indeed teaches critical race theory. She quickly amends her position to be only about public schools. An NBC op ed compares trans swimmer Leah Thomas to Major League Baseball legend Jackie Robinson. Now, as an African-American woman, this is insulting to me. Jackie Robinson was controversial because he was uh, an African-American. It wasn't because he was Caucasian pretending to be African-American. It wasn't because he was a woman pretending to be a man. It was precisely who and what he was that was controversial at the time. Uh, connecting uh sexual confusion with being an African-American is a, a rube, and I, I find it very frustrating and insulting when it is used very often to try to justify a position. That said, from the story in Breitbart, uh, Bright Bart, rather, written by Cheryl Cookie, which I hope doesn't reflect the content. Uh, Purdue University professor of American and gender studies. The op-ed argues that Thomas' recent string of victories at the NCAA swimming championship in which he beat out two silver Olympic medalists should be celebrated as an advancement of women's sports. An advancement of women's sports, according to Cookie. I'm sorry, I just kind of catches me off guard to say the name. Thomas, a man living as a woman has shattered the notion of the sex segregation of women that sports have often promoted. You you do the math. From NBC News, today, athletes like Jackie Robinson are celebrated as breaking the color barrier in sports, although that narrative often requires sanitizing, simplifying, or rewriting a more complex, nuanced, and contradictory history. There remains, though, a cultural investment in celebrating sports firsts. Many of the athletes who become the first encounter resistance, backlash, and opposition, especially from those who have historically benefited from the status quo in sports. A quote from NBC News. Ryan Anderson it weighs in on Twitter. If the analogy to Jackie Robinson was accurate, the logical conclusion would be getting rid of separate male female sporting events the way we rightly got rid of separate black and white sporting events. Skin color is irrelevant to athletics. Sex is not. And let me repeat that because this is at the heart of the matter. Skin color is irrelevant to athletics. Sex is not. Abigail Schreier also weighs in on Twitter. First, they steal opportunities from women. Then they tell us we should be celebrating this as a victory for women. The masterclass is gaslighting. In other news, Charlie Kirk is among a number of conservatives who have been suspended from Twitter. It's sort of a commonplace thing these days. Charlie Kirk was suspended from Twitter on Tuesday after identifying President Joe Biden's assistant health secretary in the Department of Health and Human Services as a man which of course he is but chooses to live as a woman. Kirk however did not uh, is not the only person in Twitter's cross- crosshairs the Federalist reports just 2 days after it locked down the popular Babylon B satire account for calling a biological male a man Twitter locked Babylon B editor chief Kyle Mann out of the, his account on Tuesday for tweeting a joke about Twitter's subjective user policies Mark Davis, host of 660 AM The Answer in Dallas, a Salem station, was also caught briefly in the Twitter jail. Twitter is also targeting those who dare speak out against University of Penn trans swimmer Leah Thomas, including the fellow competitors in the pool. David uh, Atherton, Rika uh, Gayorgi, is the woman who missed out on the place in the swimming final won by Leah Thomas. She tweeted about it and Twitter has suspended her. From the Daily Wire, a reporter who posted widely viewed views with NC2A athletes speaking out about the inclusion of biologically, um, biological males, transgender swimmer Leah Thomas in women's sports has been banned from Twitter. Savannah Hernandez told the Daily Wire that Twitter banned her for so called ban evasion. She made a Twitter account for her podcast after the site banned her in 2020. She said, noting that she has never been given a reason for her first ban. Well, unpopular views, at least in the view of Twitter, is sufficient grounds, at least for them. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll uh, continue in just a few moments. A reminder in the second hour, we'll hear from Peter Jessick, author of ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem put an end to critical race theory training mandates in her state. The South Dakota college students and teachers can no longer be required to attend trainings, or orientations based on critical race theory. Governor Kristi Noem signed a bill prohibiting the mandated trainings in her higher education on Monday, touting the freedom to explore and exchange ideas, saying no student or teacher should have to endorse critical race theory in order to attend, graduate from, or teach at our public universities, she said at the signing of House Bill 1012. College should remain a place where freedom of thought and expression are encouraged, not stifled by political agendas. Christopher Rufo weighed in on Twitter, saying the legislation strengthens civil rights laws to prohibit racial scapegoating, collective guilt and racialist abuse by teachers and administrators. California Disney employees staged a walkout over Florida's parental rights bill. Uh, Disney employees in uh, California on Tuesday protested Florida's parental rights and education bill, which prohibits sexual orientation and gender identity instruction in grades K through 12 after uh, the company's lobbying attempts to kill the legislation failed. Accommodating the uh, demonstration, Disney decided to postpone a management retreat originally scheduled for this week. Disney CEO Bob Chapek held a town hall meeting for all employees on Monday to continue discussing the company's response to the bill, which had many employees up in arms. NBC News reports that Florida's Democratic Party is under fire from its own LGBTQ caucus and members who wanted to cancel its annual fundraiser at Disney World because they believe the company did too little to stop the legislation. And from Deadline, all of the company's three major content suppliers, Marvel, Pixar, and Lucasfilm, have been publicly critical of the company's handling of the situation. California abortion legislation could open the door to infanticide. They intend to not only codify the killing of unborn children throughout all nine months of pregnancy, but to decriminalize killing newborns days or even weeks after birth. New language added to AB 2223 last week revealed the disturbing intent. The proposed legislation would shield a mother from civil and criminal charges for any actions or omissions related to her pregnancy, including miscarriage, stillbirth or abortion or prenatal death. Although definitions of prenatal death vary, all of them include the demise of newborns seven days or more after birth. The bill from Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks additionally uh, protects anyone who aids or assists a pregnant person in exercising these rights. It also allows a woman to sue any police department or legal authority which arrests or charges her for hurting or killing her child under provisions of the bill. I just want you to take a moment and let that sink in for a moment. Now, there's another bill, Senate Bill 1142. It would provide the funding for out-of-state residents. Lawmakers in California have introduced a bill that would set aside taxpayer money to help women residing outside the state obtain abortions in the state as concerns about significant changes to the United States abortion law loom. Well, when asked whether court packing is a bad idea, President Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, has thus far refused to answer. Free Beacon says that Senate Judiciary Committee ranking member Chuck Grassley asked Jackson, "Uh, do you agree with Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg that court packing is a bad idea? Jackson has said that court packing is a political question for Congress to decide. But Grassley argued the question is fair because sitting Supreme Court justices have spoken on that matter. High inflation is here for a while, perhaps for a long while. Uh, While much of the U.S. was focused on Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson's Senate hearings, and rightly so, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell was giving a speech for the National Association for Business Economics, in which he admitted that 40-year high inflation is a serious problem. Well, yeah, the inflation outlook has deteriorated significantly this year, even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Powell stated. Well, yeah, the rise in inflation has been much greater and more persistent than forecasters generally expected. Powell, who last June dismissed rising inflation, as merely transitory and doubled down on that outlook as late as last December, is now warning that higher prices could be with us for the next three years. He further noted that the Fed will act to raise interest rates again, but another half percent hike will do little to lower inflation. Interest rates have stayed too low for too long and need to be significantly raised in order to lower inflation. But doing so will cost the government more money and drag down economic growth. Well, yeah. In another example of the culture battles for GOP governors, two Republican governors faltered, and one stood firm against the Left's culture war this week. Utah Governor Spencer Cox, he vetoed a bill banning biological males from playing in female sports. His excuse for failing to protect girls and women's women, rather, was that doing so could lead to higher rates of suicide for gender dysphoric youth. Cox evidently bought into the Rainbow Mafia's f- uh, f- claims that attribute suicide to a lack of societal acceptance rather than the fact that these individuals are suffering from uh, mental challenges. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb also vetoed a bill that barred males from competing on female sports teams in K-12 through schools. Holcomb's excuse was similar to that uh, made by South Dakota Governor Christine Noem last year, as he claimed that the bill would not stand up in the courts. Both the Utah and Indiana legislatures uh, may override the vetoes. The one GOP governor who stood firm this week was the aforementioned Noem, who signed legislation banning state universities from requiring students and teachers to attend trainings or orientations based on critical race theory. She explained college uh, uh, should remain a place where freedom of thought and expression are encouraged, not stifled by political agendas. The GOP is wooing voters at gas stations. Republicans have initiated a voter registration campaign at gas stations across several states. The Biden gas hike, as they refer to it, is the product of his own doing, and Americans have faced record high um, has gas prices uh, as a result, explained the RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel. The RNC is mobilizing at gas stations across, uh, across the country to register voters and remind folks that the anti-American energy of Biden and the Democrats is costing them more. The voter registration campaign started in Arizona and North Carolina, and the RNC is planning to expand it to California, Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Michigan, Maine, Ohio, Texas, and Wisconsin. President Biden surrendered and the Taliban ended higher education for girls. If they were trans girls, there'd probably be something of an uproar and an outrage. But these girls in Afghanistan will effectively no longer be permitted to go to school above the sixth grade following the Taliban's recent decision to refrain from opening schools to girls beyond that. And while the decision is said to be a continued postponement of opening higher level uh, schools to girls, it's likely based on the Taliban's hardline ideology that things won't change for the better anytime soon. Well, as the Taliban's external relations representative uh, stated, the leadership hasn't decided when or how they will allow girls to return to school. Unsurprisingly, the Taliban has failed to follow through on the promise to allow girls to continue to attend schools. I know I'm shocked. You probably are, too. As local journalism um, Journalist, rather, Mariam Nahibi observed, we did everything the Taliban asked in terms of Islamic dress, and they promised that uh, girls rather could go to school. And now they have broken their promise. It turns out some of the biggest victims of Joe Biden's decision to surrender Afghanistan to the Taliban are girls and women. The CDC overreported covid deaths by more than 70,000 More Americans 65 and under died from alcohol-related causes than COVID in 2020, and more than 8 in 10 Americans are being hurt by inflation. The cost of lithium, uh, metal used in making electric uh, car batteries, is up nearly 500 percent since last year. If you thought you couldn't afford an electric vehicle before. You certainly can't now. Ron DeSantis declared Emma Wyant the rightful NC2A swimming champ. And Democrats are circulating a plan for changing the 2024 nomination calendar, moving against Iowa and welcoming new early states, according to The Washington Post. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. we're going to take a quick break just a reminder that Peter Jassik will be my guest in the second hour Isis Faith in the face of evil
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine Kpdq
2: we're back. you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well President Biden is traveling to Europe today ahead of in fact he's probably there by now ahead of the special NATO summit uh, with other world leaders. On the war in Ukraine, it's considered an emergency meeting, although it seems a bit late in coming. While Russian troops continue to shell the strategic port city of Maripol this week as troops remained largely stalled outside of Kiev. Thousands of Maripol rest, uh, residents escaped on Tuesday while Russia continued to bomb the city. And a senior U.S. defense official said the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is still considering the possibility of deploying additional American troops to NATO's eastern flank in Europe. Well, NATO estimates that some 15,000 Russian troops have been killed in Ukraine. Uh, they believe between seven to 15,000 troops have been killed in the ongoing war. The military officer, speaking on condition of anonymity, according to the Associated Press, said the estimate on the number killed is based on a combination of information from the Ukrainian government, indications from Russia, and open source information. The officer added that an estimated 30 to 40,000 Russian casualties overall is derived from what he called a standard calculation that in war, as an army suffers, three wounded soldiers for every soldier killed. The casualties included um, killed in action and wounded in action, as well as those taken prisoner or missing in action, according to the officer. Russian Ministry of Defense head Sergei Shogu has uh, reportedly missing. The head of Russia's Ministry of Defense has not been seen in public for 12 days and is possibly missing, according to reports and messages circulated on Wednesday. Investigative journalists from the, from the Russian independent news outlet um, claimed on Wednesday that the normally media-savvy Shogu has not appeared in public since the 11th of March. There are rumors that he is in poor health and is experiencing heart problems while other messages are swirling online, suggesting he might have been fired from the ministry and is on house arrest, according to Russian journalists. He has, uh, was last seen in public on the 11th of March presenting awards to Russian troops occupying Ukraine during what Russian President Vladimir Putin dubbed a special military operation, but what the West has condemned as a full-scale invasion of the sovereign nation of Ukraine. Meanwhile, NATO took on two of the world's superpowers Wednesday and condemned both Russia and China as the 30-member alliance looks to counter the growing threat of a biological, chemical, or nuclear attack. Russia must stop its nuclear saber-rattling. This is a dangerous uh, enterprise and it is irresponsible. That's a quote from NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg, speaking to reporters. Any use of nuclear weapons will fundamentally change the nature of the conflict, and Russia must understand that a nuclear war should never be fought. He continued, they can never win a nuclear war. Well, the Secretary General's comments came just hours after Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov He refused to take the threat of nuclear attack off the table, and President Biden warned the use of chemical weapons in Ukraine are a real threat. Stoltenberg said he expected all 30 nations will be in attendance for the summit tomorrow, where the alliance will discuss increasing aid to Ukraine and bolstering defenses against chemical and biological weapons. We cannot take peace for granted, the secretary general warned. We'll see how effective this emergency meeting ultimately Is Meanwhile, support in Finland to join NATO has doubled since just one year ago, with the majority now voicing support for the first time since polling started in 1984. Finnish Business and Policy Forum EVA has collected data twice each year for almost 40 years to track attitudes and values, which includes politics, economics, foreign relations, the environment and well-being. Chief among those interests remains whether Finland should join NATO. Results from autumn of 2021 found that only 26 percent of the population supported joining NATO. But following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that number has leapt to 60 percent support for NATO membership. The same percentage of Finns support taking a decision this year on the matter. Historic support for joining NATO has remained low, with the previous peak in August of 1998 showing just 28 percent. The study clearly cited Russia's invasion of Ukraine as responsible for the shift in opinion. The exact opposite effect that Vladimir Putin hoped would be the result of his efforts in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Western allies and Ukrainian officials are growing increasingly concerned that Belarusian troops mounting at the border will invade Ukraine to join Russian President Putin's forces. Belarus's entry into the war could have broader implications in the Ukraine-Russian conflict, especially if Russia commanded Belarusian troops enter through western Ukraine amid fears that the fighting could either purposely or unintentionally spill over the border into Poland, a member of NATO. And again, that would definitely broaden the war. In a video message Tuesday, Belarus's exile opposition leader argued that Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko A close ally and friend of Putin has already committed high treason by allowing thousands of Russian troops to stage in Belarusian territory before invading Ukraine in February. He forced uh, to flee Belarus, the former leader, amid widespread protests and military crackdown after the highly contested 2020 presidential election, no, not here, there, directly appealed to members of the Belarus military, as well as their wives and mothers, for soldiers to oppose any criminal order to invade Ukraine. We'll see where that goes. Well, on this day in history, 1775, Patrick Henry delivers an address to Virginia Provincial Convention in which observers say he declares, give me liberty or give me death. 1806, explorers Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, having reached the Pacific coast, begin their journey back east. 1933, on this day in history, the German Reichstag adopts the Enabling Act, which effectively grants Adolf Hitler dictatorial powers. 1942, the first Japanese Americans are evacuated by the U.S. Army during World War II. They arrive at the internment camp in Manzanar, California. 1956, Pakistan becomes an Islamic Republic. 1965, America's first two-person space mission takes place as Gemini 3 blasts off with astronauts Virgil Gus Grisham and John W. Young aboard for a nearly five-hour flight. 1983, President Ronald Reagan first proposes developing technology to intercept incoming enemy missiles, an idea that came to be known as the Strategic Defense Initiative. It was considered a joke at the time, essential now. Also in 1983, Dr. Barney Clark, recipient of the Jarvik Permanent Artificial Heart, dies at the University of Utah Medical Center after 112 days with the device. 1998, Titanic ties an Academy Award record by winning 11 Oscars, including the Best Picture director, James Cameron, and the song, My Heart Will Go On. Now, I should say that Sam, uh, the engineer, wanted to sing that for us, but I've declined the invitation. 2003, during the Iraq War, a U.S. Army maintenance convoy is ambushed in Nazaria. Eleven soldiers are killed, including P- um, PFC Lori Ann Paistua. Six are captured, including PFC Jessica Link, who, uh, Lynch, rather, who would be rescued on the 1st of April in 2003. Well, Republicans were baffled after Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, said she was unable to define what a woman is, which tells you just how confused our culture has become and how politicized the issue has become. She told Senator Marsha Blackburn that she was unable to answer the question because she is not a biologist. I had lunch today with my um, eight year old niece. She's a grandniece. She could have answered the question, but she's not a biologist. It's a simple question. What is a woman? Blackburn said on the uh, statement. Uh, It is uh, telling when a nominee supported by far left advocacy groups, the senator went on to say, will not even answer the question. Republican lawmakers from both chambers torched Jackson over her answer as a clip went viral with Senator Ted Cruz posting an eye emoji with a video of the exchange. Now, it would not have been in her best interest, I suppose, uh, to offend her uh, left leaning supporters by answering the right-leaning questioners of the hearing, but nonetheless, it uh, is rather sad. Well, I wish we had time, and I only have a couple of minutes, to go into some of the highlights of today's uh, committee hearing. I'll I'll at least uh, start a couple of them. The Uh, The judge uh, once again went before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Tuesday with members of Congress questioning the Supreme Court nominee on a host of uh, of issues. The second day before the committee lasted around 12 hours with uh, the uh, judge being questioned by Republican members about hot button issues like critical race theory and gender ideology. One example I've just given. Uh, Blackburn asked uh, if there are physical differences between men and women, and uh, while I've already mentioned that, uh, the answer was I cannot answer the question. Democrat Senator Pat Leahy of Vermont asked the uh, the judge about how she responded to claims that as a judge she's been soft on crime and anti-law enforcement. Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri asked the uh, judge about her record on child pornography cases, claiming that the nominee was too lenient on offenders. And Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California asked the judge about her views on the controversial Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade, the 1973 ruling legalizing abortion uh, nationwide. And finally, Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas asked the Supreme Court nominee about critical race theory and if the controversial academic concept would influence her legal decision. All hot button issues in the um, hearing uh, that will most assuredly confirm her as the next supreme court justice you're listening to the georgine rice show coming up in our second hour peter jasic isis faith in the face of evil news and traffic up next
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: well good afternoon and welcome back you're listening to the georgine rice show december 10th 2015 is a day that my guest peter jasic We'll never forget. He was in Khartoum, Sudan, ready to go home to his wife and children in the Czech Republic when he was forcefully detained by airport security and accused of being a spy. Well, that was only the start of his prison journey because of his work helping persecuted believers in Sudan through Voice of the Martyrs. He was imprisoned in Sudan with very little food, no real medical care, yet his faith in God was stronger than ever. But the challenges were mounting. He's uh, made record of that experience in his latest book to be released tomorrow, Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. And this story that releases on the 2nd of June, he tells that story, the opposition he faced no matter where he turned, who his roommates were, and how God came alongside and strengthened him through this challenge. Well, my guest, Peter uh, Jasik, is the son of a pastor who was persecuted in communist Czechoslovakia as well as equipped to join the Voice uh, of the Martyrs um, in 2002 to help persecuted Christians in hostile areas and restricted nations. Today, Peter serves with Voice of the Martyrs as their global ambassador, traveling around the world to speak about his imprisonment in Sudan, and encouraging believers to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in prayer and in action. We are so uh, thankful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Hi, everybody. Thanks for the invitation.
2: Well, let's uh, let's go back and talk a little bit about the nation of Sudan at the time the events that you write about took place. Um, describe for us the persecution that Sudanese believers were facing. If you
3: visit the country of Sudan, if you would have visited that uh, country at that time, you know, you would have... Uh you would, could uh, get easily the false impression, you know, that uh, there is a certain level of uh, freedom because you would see churches from various denominations. You would go see people going in and coming out. Uh, but uh, the major problem starts when uh, the person uh, would uh, follow christ 's great commission, which means to make disciples of all people, uh, including the Muslim majority. you know otherwise, if uh, Christians just um, uh, had uh, were practicing their Christian life inside the churches, uh, they could live uh, more or less uh, free life you know they were certainly experiencing some persecution especially if they were not wealthy enough to send their children to uh private schools they would have to memorize quran with the muslim fellow students uh they would suffer uh, some persecution uh, you know from the employees uh, i mean employers because you know the uh, em- Christian employees would always um, have more difficulties uh, to find jobs uh, you know, compared to their Muslim neighbors. Uh, but the major problem started when Christians um, uh, started to share the gospel with uh, their uh, Muslim fellow neighbors which is I- illegal even now in Sudan uh, and at that time was um, highly uh, per- they were highly persecuted for that and uh, you know I heard about that persecution uh, when I attended the conference in uh, Ethiopia in October 2015 and I uh, heard compelling testimonies you know exactly of uh, what happens when there is a person like a Muslim background believer. You know, it is illegal mm-hmm. still now, and it was illegal at that time uh, to convert from Islam to any other religion. And I heard, I saw pictures of an injured young Muslim background believer student that, uh, you know, became a believer during his studies in Khartoum University. And I also saw pictures of churches, uh, uh, church buildings completely demolished just because their pastors were actively encouraging their church members to follow Christ's Great Commission. So that was what brought me there at the time. And Unfortunately, the situation is still very similar, even though, you know, we hear some news about some changes, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, President Bashir was removed by... You should know that the situation is also, um, you know, very interesting because the guy who led the coup uh, was um, uh, Ibn Ouf, which was a cousin of uh, President Bashir and married to his daughter. So what can you expect, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, can, what good can come out of this uh, uh, coup, you know? and then the power was handed over to people that were very cruel uh, that are actually on the list of the ICC as uh, wanted criminals.
2: In your book, you point out that for three decades, the Sudanese government had targeted Christians along with those who aren't ethnically Arab for extermination. So this was extermination. That is the the most extreme. Uh, and since the... Uh, former president, um, rose to power in 1989 through a military coup and established a strict form of Islamic law throughout the country. His brutal regime intimidated, arrested, imprisoned, and tortured Christians. You had traveled there as a representative of uh, of Voice of the Martyrs to meet with persecuted Christians, to do research. What was the purpose of your trip that was only expected to take four days?
3: Yeah, you know, I uh, should uh, understand that when I visited countries uh, restricted like country of Sudan... I could not come as an official representative of uh, Mm -hmm. the organization called VOM. Because, you know, I always had to come uh, secretly, you know, unnoticed, you know, like a tourist. Because if they would know that there is uh, someone who wants to document uh, the persecution of Christians, they would immediately... Probably ban me from entering the country. So uh, yeah, I had good plan for these four days. I had secret meetings. I had uh, uh, everything carefully prepared. But of course, you know, in country of Sudan, it was not very difficult uh, to uh, follow a Westerner. You know, in the country that has, uh, you know, so many secret policemen. Uh, uh, you know, that are work. Secret policemen that are uh, going back and forth. You know, they're monitoring. The the foreigners that's very easy for them to monitor and of course i could expect that but uh, i w- i thought that you know my mission was completed i have uh Uh, accomplished what I wanted. I met and interviewed the uh, injured Muslim background believer. I also uh, visited the sites of the demolished churches, even though it uh, it had to be at night and I could not uh, uh, take photos because, uh, you know, with the flash I would be immediately noticed. But I had that good, uh, you know, feeling that my mission was completed. But uh, Only when I was holding the boarding passes in my hand, that was the moment when I got arrested by security police.
2: Now, the the pictures and the material that you just described, I understand they were encrypted on your computer, so they would not be easily accessed. When you were um, arrested at the airport, what were you told you were being charged with? What was the purpose of that arrest?
3: I was not uh, told much uh, when I was arrested in the airport because, you know, uh, those people spoke very poor English. You know, I tried French, uh, German, Russian, you know, all the languages that I speak. You know, my Arabic at that time was not fluent, so I could not speak in Arabic, Uh, but, uh, you know, they just wanted my computer, my laptop, my cell phone, my camera, video camera, so I understood, you know, that they want to search it, and I didn't want to give them passwords for that, so eventually, you know, um, my uh, time before the departure was getting shorter, and uh, it was obvious that I will miss that flight, And then I was uh, transferred to the headquarters of the secret police. And then they started the proper interrogation, you know, with the person who spoke uh, good English. And then I understood that they were monitoring me, you know, my activities. And of course, you know, um, if you delete some stuff from your laptop, you know, which I or from your camera, you know, it is obvious that uh, um, that was probably my mistake that I didn't do properly because I was supposed to overwrite the empty space uh, after the deleting the files, you know, uh, especially in my camera with the special software that I had available at the time. But uh, I just deleted them. I did not anticipate such a detailed scrutiny of, uh, of my memory card. And of course, you know, then uh, you, uh, if you have some other memory cards or sticks or uh, external hard drives, you know, if, if it's something that is empty, unless it is uh, rewritten or reformatted or with a special program, uh, there can be always something uh, digged out of it. And that was actually the case.
2: Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation again uh, this afternoon. We're talking with my guest, Peter Yashek He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS: Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is available tomorrow, published by Salem Books. Quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. It's not just a book. It is his story told in some detail to give you some indication of what persecuted believers face um, when the enemy captures them and uh, experience imprisonment. Now, you had come to uh, minister to and to learn more about persecuted believers in Sudan, you had just become, as you told us before the break, you had just become one of those persecuted believers. Tell us about your first experience when you were ultimately imprisoned and who your fellow cellmates were.
3: You know, I was after nearly 24 hours interrogation in the headquarters of the Siki police. I was uh, transferred to the first prison. You know, I went through five different prisons in Sudan, but of course, the first one was. Uh, The first negative experience with being imprisoned, you know, in a foreign country, and that prison was the prison of the secret police. And uh, even though the conditions uh, were very bad, you know, and there was uh, a lot of uh, humidity, mold, and uh, insects, and kinds of... uh, uh, things that were very unpleasant you know the uh, what was much more uh unpleasant was actually that i found found out uh the next uh morning you know that i 'm actually imprisoned with six members of islamic state and i found it very easily because you know they asked me about uh, uh, some of the events you know what is going on in the world these people are actually completely cut off from all information from uh, the outside world there's no radio no newspaper no television and uh, when i told them you know that what happened about uh, three weeks before my time in prison, you know, when uh, in fr- Paris, uh, during uh, coordinated attacks of Islamic State, uh, uh, 129 uh, people died, were killed, actually, by Muslim extremists. Uh, they interrupted me, and they uh, burst uh, bursted in a mm-hmm. celebration uh, of uh, Shouting "Allahu Akbar" for several minutes and uh, hugging each other, rejoicing that 129 infidels got killed. That was the moment when I realized that I am amidst of these ISIS people. And of course, later on, they uh, clearly identify themselves. I got uh, more information about each individual. You know how, uh, what did they do? You know, um, for instance, you know there was a Libyan guy who, at the age of uh, 12, was sent by his father. To be a person, a bodyguard of Osama bin Laden, you know, and this guy was uh, treated with high respect from the other people, and uh, they used to call him a man of sword. And I actually thought that it was, this was the title was because of his work with Usa- uh, Osama bin Laden. But only when he, after he was transferred uh, to other cell, I found out that the true reason of him being called a man of sword was not being bodyguard of Osama, but being a member of the uh, you know squad that actually beheaded the 20 Coptic Egyptian Christians and one African Christian on the Libyan shore in February of 2015 just a few months before he was with me in the same cell you know i could say he you know in in a a figurative way that he still had the fresh human blood on his hands and that was very shocking you know and not only that but there were some other conditions like you know i have lost um, in the first three months, uh, uh, 55 pounds of my body weight. You know, I after one month they uh, realized that I was actually when I was transferred to the hospital that I lost half of my blood and being heavily anemic and malnourished, that made the whole um, life in this business cell so with the ISIS guys a lot more complicated and hard. And th- then now now I come, you know, to the point that I realized, you know, and. Um, my major concern at first was not that I would die in this prison, uh, but that I would l- rather lose my sound mind. Because, you know, I was witnessing not only five times per day prayers, but I could not have a Bible. They could have Qurans. They were reading Qurans, uh, uh, you know, the whole day if they were not sleeping or eating. Uh, and uh, all of that, you know, was um, kind of, you know, Uh, I was worried that I may lose my sound mind, and I started to pray and ask the Lord, you know, please keep my mind sound. You know, I was not that much surprised that I am in prison because, you know, I consider, based on what the Bible teaches about persecution, that persecution is actually an essential part of a Christian life the Lord Jesus was preparing his followers that they will be persecuted and he didn't promise them that always they will be released from persecution like I was Uh, he said even some of you will be killed you know when you read what Paul was teaching his followers and he said uh, everyone who wants to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted that's in 2nd Timothy 3.12 so I was teaching others and encouraging others uh, that the persecution is an essential part of the life so how could I surprised but of course you know when day by day week by week months by months you know i started to ask the lord how long lord how long i will have to be in this prison
2: mm. uh, in addition to being housed in the same cell a cell that as you describe it was really intended for an individual but there were several of you there so the condition in of itself was unbearable but you were tortured regularly uh, at the glee of your ISIS, um, your Islamic State uh, cellmates.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it started with uh, my freedom being of movement in this cell that was very crowded. I know it sounds a little bit strange, you know, how could you move, but you can still move in the small space. You know, I was uh, not allowed to cross, uh, you know, when they were, they were walking from one end to the other end. Uh, I was not allowed to speak on my own. I only had, to, uh, I was supposed to answer their questions. And uh, later on, they started to slander me with bad words. I was not called Peter anymore by them. I was called, you know, in which in Arabic means a filthy pig. And uh, they called me, filthy Pick, come here, filthy Pick go there, you know, so that was like that, or filthy rat. And uh, shortly after that, they started to uh, slap my face, beat me with their fists to my face, uh, uh, or later on, they used a wooden stick, and they uh, were beating me with the wooden stick, or they were kicking me with their shoes, with their legs, with their shoes on, And uh, or they try to invent um, uh, ways uh, how to make my position very uncomfortable, that I, when I was released from that position, I could not walk, I could not stand because of the pain, you know, after being in a very uncomfortable position for a long time. But that all was the moment, you know, when I realized that, uh, you know, the words of Apostle Paul that he says in um, uh, Second Corinthians 12.10, he says when I am weak, then I am strong. So when we reach uh, the bottom of our physical or emotional strength, uh, then we can experience the Lord's strength. And I was able to pray for those people. I was able to, um, you know, even turn my other cheek when they were beating me. And I can honestly tell you, It was not me who was able to turn Mm -hmm. the other cheek. It was actually Christ in me who was able to turn the other cheek to them and also to share the gospel with them. And, I, you know, I was... Experiencing such a moment of peace, you know, even when, especially actually when I was being beaten by them and their um, effort to, uh, they always came, you know, with new ways of uh, torturing me and eventually they came with the idea that they will do the waterboarding on me and uh, you know they uh, made everything ready for that you know they even convinced the guards to move uh, seven of us from our cell where there was no running water to the other cell the only cell actually on that floor that had running water so that they could do the waterboarding you know they prepared some cloth you know that they could cover my face With And when everything was ready uh, on that morning, you know, uh, the Lord intervened in the last moment. But I have learned whilst being with these guys, you know, one other big lesson, you know, the power of prayer. You know, I was amidst of my enemies, literally not knowing when they will slap me, kick me or uh, use the fist to my face or use the wooden stick. And, uh, you know, after all the the five days prayers in the evening, you know, I could say that the nightlife started in the cell and, uh, you know, they could stay awake till maybe 2 a.m. talking, you know, with each other. And uh, of course, you know, I was very tired. And at 9 p.m., I was able to peacefully lay down and fall asleep. uh, And I was amazed, you know, uh, why am I able to fall asleep amidst of my enemies? And that happened every night. And only two months later, when I started to receive letters from my family, I found out why I was able to fall asleep. You know, in my home church, People were praying for me. They were mm. fasting. And especially, you know, at 8 p.m., the Czech Republic winter time, uh, people who uh, uh, applied for this uh, special prayer application, you know, their cell phones started to ring with reminders, prayers for Peter. And for one hour, these people went on their knees in the place where they were, and for one hour, they were fervently praying for me. And oh, now the most God. important thing is that. The time difference between Czech Republic in winter and Sudan was one hour. So actually, people were praying for 9 p.m. Sudanese time till 10 p.m. And that was a time when I could fall asleep as a result of their fervent, and faithful. Praise.
2: Praise God. We're going to continue our conversation. Once again, we're talking with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with Isis, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books. We're going to find out more about how God attended to him during this season of persecution, so do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show and I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yeshik. He is the author of Imprisoned with Isis. Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and will be available uh, tomorrow. So I would encourage you, if you'd like to understand more about what it is like to be in the presence of one's enemies and as a believer being persecuted and what role God plays and his people play in the midst of all of that, this is an excellent book to, uh, uh, to read again, available tomorrow. You mentioned that during this time in which you are housed with these ISIS members, they had made the decision that they were going to waterboard you, had managed to uh, move from the cell that you had been in to one where there was running water. Um, But you were rescued out of that situation, uh, and one might find it difficult to see solitary confinement as a rescue, but tell us a little bit about uh, your transfer into solitary confinement and whether or not you were able to ultimately have a copy of God's Word.
3: Yeah, you know, when I was uh, taken out of the cell, I had this feeling like when Daniel was uh, taken out from the lion's den. Literally, there was the only difference that, you know, the... Uh, Lord has kept the mouth of the lions shut and their mouths were widely open when I was taken from them mess. they could not believe that I was taken a- away and uh, the, the next day was actually I was punished by being put in solitary confinement which in one sense you know it is considered like a punishment in any prison and even the ISIS people were afraid of being put into the solitary confinement you know one of them told me that he was there for five days and he said if they would not have released me, I would lose my mind, uh, sound mind. And I said to myself, you know, in one sense, for me, it was the first moment when I had actually uh, a free time to uh, speak out loud, to pray out loud and to walk around and for me, I considered that moment, that day when I was put on the solitary confinement like the first liberation inside mm. of the country. Of course I haven't been tortured by the guards uh, through, uh, they were fr- blowing freezing air on uh, um, in, into my cell and uh, they took uh, my blanket away from me, so I was literally freezing, but I could experience the Lord's physical presence, you know, like a, Mm. a, you know, warm coat around me in one moment and uh, spontaneously the words of my mouth were, my Lord and my God. Because, you know, I have felt, you know, that the Lord was with me in the cell. And even my memory started to return. And I was able to uh, start uh, even singing, you know, one song, you know, and that was the song, "Dine Be the Glory. You know, this is actually a hymn, you know, that I have memorized when I was probably 15 or 16 years old. And I could not remember the words of this song uh, when I was uh, heavily anemic and malnutrished. <clears throat> In the first uh, uh, two months, uh, being with the ISIS people, because you know my memory was not working normally. When you're uh, when you lose that my that much blood, you know your uh, brain doesn't work normally. But In that moment when I was for the first night in the solitary confinement, freezing from the cold, you know, uh, my memory uh, came back and I could start singing this hymn, "Dying Be the Glory, you know, and the first two verses and the third one came about maybe two or three days later. I'm sure, you know, that the guards and maybe even the ISIS people, when they heard me singing the whole night. They thought that I got mad the first night in this solitary confinement already. So that was an amazing moment. And, you know, I was, for the first four months, I was praying, and my only prayer was to uh, be released and to go home. And uh, then I was transferred to another prison uh, and, uh, uh, and and the conditions were much worse there. You know, we were f- maybe sometimes 50 people squeezed in the small room without a toilet, you know, that had maybe 25 uh, square meters. And one night... The Lord has brought another 12 Eritrean refugees and I was led by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with them. That was such a clear guidance of the Holy Spirit that I have experienced, uh, I would say, rarely in my life. But that night it was so obvious. So I went, squeezed through the a crowd of people to them and I shared the gospel to them and on that night the Lord has touched their hearts and they all were ready to receive Christ so I, I encouraged mm-hmm. them to pray with me and they all did and all 12 of them committed their lives to Christ and that was a turning point for me mm. from that moment I really understood that I had to be in prison exactly four months and one day why because these people needed to hear the gospel from me. And that changed my whole perspective, you know, on being in prison. And another month later, you know, I was another, because, you know, this uh, encouraged me to share the gospel even with the uh, fellow Muslims after these... uh, uh, Twelve Eritrean refugees. On the next morning, they were actually transferred to the uh, next uh, another prison, and I could not see them anymore. Uh, but I started to share the gospel with all the other people, even the Muslims, right? And they, <clears throat> uh, uh, I was punished by the guards again by being put in solitary confinement. But that was all in pre- uh, prepared by the Lord. And when I was transferred to the solitary confinement a week later. I have received the most precious gift in my life. You know, the the representative of the Czech embassy came to visit me and he brought me the Czech Bible. So I was holding the word of God after five months of, of not having it. And I was so hungry after the word of God that I immediately started to read, you know, just standing in the window when the daylight was coming in and I could read from... Uh, 8 in the morning, maybe till 5 p.m., but I finished reading the Bible within three weeks, from Genesis to Revelation. That just documents how hungry I was after the Word of God.
2: You spent 445 days in prison. Um, What you may not have known during that time was that there were those who were praying for you as well as those who were advocating on your behalf for your release. What happened that ultimately resulted in your being released from prison? And looking back, how do you interpret all of these events?
3: First of all, I would like to say that uh, we know that the Lord Jesus is the one who, when he opens, no one can close. When he closes, no one can open. So I I, um, uh, give the credit to the Lord for, you know, his timing and His sovereign will. You know, when readers will read the book from the first pages, they will realize how the Lord was miraculously preparing me for that time two and a half years before this experience, right. right? And I was already shared that how I felt, and I how late, uh, two months later, how I found out. Uh, why could I fall asleep peacefully when people were praying for me? So I was aware that people were praying for me. You know, later on, I was even aware that many people were uh, not only praying, but they were doing certain activities. They were signing online petition, you know, the uh, civic organization called Citizen Go, based in Spain, you know, and they has a worldwide network they organized a petition of uh, you know for our release and that petition had uh, nearly half a million of signatures uh, from mm-hmm. various countries you know that also the european uh, parliament issued the resolution uh, uh, demanding uh, uh, our release you know when i was uh, in prison already for nearly one year Uh, the European Parliament issued a resolution demanding our release. And, uh, you know, I was uh, considered like being a spy of the Czech Republic, but when the European Parliament issued this uh, resolution demanding our release, I was actually reclassified as a spy of the European Union. So that had this kind of uh, uh, interesting impact. But for us... Knowing, you know, that uh, even from letters or from contacts with our families, it was tremendously encouraging uh, to know that not only that people were praying for us, but also they were doing some activities. Uh, they were not silent. They were writing letters to uh, Sudanese embassies around the world. And of course, you know, uh, I have not received those letters that were sent uh, either to me, directly to prison. I only receive letters sent through the lawyer or through my family. But uh, the fact uh, that we knew about the uh, body of Christ, about the church around the world that were praying uh, for us and demanding our release was extremely encouraging. I remember, you know, that when I found out about uh, my home church church, uh, and their prayers that actually caused me to be able to fall asleep at 9 p.m. every time, I was actually convicted by the Holy Spirit. You know, how frequently someone asked me for prayers. And I said this kind of uh, usual, typical Christian social phrase, you know, yes, yes, I will keep you in my prayers. But I was not Uh, Literally, faithfully doing that So I made this commitment When I will be released from prison I will do this faithfully And not only that I will also encourage Many other Christians in the free countries To pray for our brothers and sisters Who are being persecuted Or who are in prison And of course, you know I uh, knew that persecution Is an essential part of the Christian life But when, uh, you know, I was already in prison, like, maybe uh, seven months, you know, I was um, silently maybe feeling sorry for myself that I'm already in prison for seven months. But the Lord showed me before my spiritual eyes, you know, the pictures of three Eritrean pastors that have been in prison, two of them in 2004, one of them in 2005. So they were already 11 or 12 years in prison. And I was feeling... Feeling sorry for myself, you know, that I'm in prison seven months. So, after this experience, I deliberately started to pray for them and not only for them, for other Christians. You know, my uh, prison uh, cell walls were actually divided into different segments where I have. Uh, visualize, you know, some people from various countries, from China, from Nigeria, from Eritrea or Central Asia. And I was uh, praying faithfully for them uh, because I and that actually helped me to uh, uh, experience and view my burden as an easy one compared to what they had to go through because of their persecution.
2: Hmm. Well, once again, the book is titled Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and is available for purchase tomorrow. I wish we had more time because there's so much more that could be said about your experience that challenges all of us to take seriously our connection with believers who are suffering persecution for their faith and our connection with them that we have the opportunity to superintend, to pray for them Uh, and to intercede for them. Uh, Peter Jashek, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
3: You're welcome. God bless you. Thank you. You
2: You too. Again, the book is titled Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. Uh, I would highly encourage you to read the book to gain an understanding of what many of our brothers and sisters are facing for the sake of and the cause of Christ. We need to take a break, but we'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, sort of as a follow up uh, from my conversation on ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil, a new faith survey in America has been released. It was conducted by the Marist College Poll and released. By Desiree News uh, on Tuesday, it finds that Americans maintain a stronger sense of religiosity and spirituality. I'd like to see those two words defined than much of the mainstream media would lead people to believe. Well, this might be encouraging. The survey also found that Americans retain core religious beliefs, even as they are less attached to religious practices and institutions, read church, such as daily prayer and attending services. In addition, the survey found that a substantial majority of Americans are deeply concerned over the country's moral direction. Specifically, 72 percent of Americans think the nation's moral compass is pointed in the wrong direction. Twenty two percent believe it's pointed in the right direction. The survey indicated Hal Boyd is the executive editor of Desiree National. Uh, He's um, said ahead of the survey, what really stands out for me is that America continues to be a religious country. Despite headlines and trend lines to the contrary, there is a strong threat of religiosity and spirituality in America, and it continues to inform and undergird the moral character of our nation. Now, I hope his uh, comments are true. Taking a survey to indicate where you stand on the religious continuum can be helpful, but it doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. It is encouraging to learn that people consider themselves to be more religious than one would believe based on uh, media coverage uh, on the subject and subjects related to one's uh, faith. Uh, It doesn't mean necessarily that we're talking about a nation that is predominantly made up of followers of Jesus, Uh, but it does say that perhaps people are more open to the gospel than we have been led to believe. So that should be encouraging. Uh Boyd pointed to a few compelling examples. He said, looking at the numbers here, 86% of Americans still pray for a family member. Now, do they pray with understanding? Do they pray to the one in whom they put their trust? Or is it just a reflex? That's kind of the American thing to do. We don't really know. The survey results also show that about 40% of Americans attend church once or twice a month. 30% are attending church on a weekly basis. So we talked about ISIS and the role that faith is playing there and a little glimpse of what faith is doing here closer to home. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at KPDQ.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook.